Hey, welcome to Current Yield, uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me today, as usual, Eric Whitehead is back from his um, sentimental journey to Russia, uh, sorry, Alaska. He was away, was Eric, for about, uh, what, uh, three or four weeks, I guess. No, well, no, it's less than that. Eric went to Alaska, and uh, he came back so excited because from Alaska, you, if you if you stand on your tiptoes, you can see Russia. If you're a fellow of a certain political persuasion, you can you can just imagine Russia during the times of Joseph Stalin and you know like the Ukrainian famine and stuff. Anyway, Eric's come back a little bit sentimental, but welcome, Eric. And Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grants, and Phil Grant, who uh, edits almost daily Grants, is sitting nearby as John Delberto, who calls you up if you don't renew your subscription. So renew your subscription so you don't have to talk to John. Well, you can talk to John anytime you want to. So I, Eric and Evan and Phil and John, Jim, we are broadcasting the day after this somewhat startling Fed announcement. And uh, the way this program is going to proceed is, is Evan is going to reprise what our monetary masterminds announced yesterday, and then we're going to chew it over. And I can't predict everything, but I am going to forecast that we're going to give these guys a piece of our mind. So Evan, will you kindly tell us what they told us? Yeah. So yesterday, Chairman Jay Powell surprised nobody by announcing uh, no rate hike. But what he did surprise the market with was just how dovish he had become. The Fed, through its stop plot, completely took off the possibility of a rate hike in 2019. And he also said that the Fed will stop letting its balance sheet run off in September of this year. Previously, they said they would uh, review it sometime at the end of this year. So basically, they brought that forward. This threw the market for a spanner. Initially, the market went red yesterday, and today it's up very, very strong. So market, stock market. the stock market, yeah, the only market that really matters for the Fed. Yes. Well, Anthony Scaramucci, who is uh, going to be speaking at our uh, April 9th conference, that would be a kind of an ad. Oh, by the way, I, I should have mentioned that uh, this podcast is brought to you in part uh, by Pitney Bowes, the SendPro. And you'll hear more about that in a moment or two. But uh, So Anthony Scaramucci at the Grants Conference on April 9th uh, is going to observe that the only poll to which Donald Trump listens is the poll of the stock market. That is his Gallup poll and his, what are some of the other polls we can listen to? The Siena College poll? No. Quinnipiac? Quinnipiac. The College Bowl poll? No, none of those. Stock market poll. That's kind of funny. Uh, both uh, Trump and our Fed actually listened to the same yeah. you know, sounding. And they got into a really big dispute in December. I, I remember Trump talking about potentially even firing Powell. Yeah. And they're both using the same uh, report card well, to I feel themselves. I feel the same way. And I think that the president and I have the equal power to fire. <laughs> I don't want to fire chairman, but Jay Powell's a nice guy. Uh, which, however, is not necessarily the only criterion for employment as chairman of the Fed. But anyway, Evan, we, I think you interrupted yourself or we interrupted you. So the Fed um, uh, turned around and did what it said it would do not. And what I was struck by was how little statistical evidence was seemingly necessary for the Fed to change its mind. So in December, uh, what they were looking for, something like 1.9% uh, inflation as they measure inflation. And now it's like uh, looking for 1.8. Yeah. So every quarter, they actually release new economic projections. And they, they reduce their projections for this year by like 10 or 20 basis points, depending on which metric you're looking at, whether it's core PCE, inflation, GDP. There is no real big change in any of the numbers they're looking at. It basically is what so they the, saw in so December. So they're, they're data-driven, or are they? Well, they are data-driven. They, they leave CNBC on in the you know office, and they, they watch it throughout the course of the day. Well, apropos of uh, forecasting and uh, the prophecy rackets generally, our friend Jeffrey Goldblatt had a good line. Do you, you care to quote that, Evan? Yeah. Uh, he uh, said this on Twitter today. Three months ago, the Fed predicted totally different policy than where they, where they are now. How can they predict 2020 policy with a straight face? Yeah. As we at Grantsers are prone to observe, the weather forecasters have, uh, if anyone has uh, ability to, to uh, amass and to analyze big data, 
as the National Weather Service. They have computing power. I think it must be the greatest in the government, if not perhaps behind. Who has more computing power? Let's see, who might that be? Oh, the spooks. But the uh, National Weather Service has uh, collected uh, tens of billions of observations over the course of, I don't know, a day, a week. Uh, it analyzes them, it crunches them, and yet the forecasts they make extend no farther out than 10 days. Although, uh, to the Weather Service's credit, there's no circularity in his predictions. Like if it predicts it's gonna to rain tomorrow, it's not gonna actually impact the weather tomorrow. The Fed, through the asset markets, tries to steer the real economy. Uh, I remember Ben Bernanke coming on, I think it was in early 2010, and bragging on um, 60 Minutes that I drove up the Russell uh, you know, uh -huh. 2000. Yeah. So the market, which is a discounting mechanism, takes its cues from what it thinks the Fed's gonna do in the future. So when the Fed swings around to be more dovish, the market completely changes. So th there's this kind of reflexivity. Are you saying that raindrops are inanimate? I'm just saying like, if you yeah, predict that rain's gonna fall tomorrow, Evan, it's not Evan, gonna That's what you just said, yeah. Okay, right. Um, snowflakes don't listen to CNBC, people do, and it's all uh, circular. Now, uh, you were saying that uh, Ben S. Bernanke, PhD, said something in 2010, right? I believe it was I, 2010. I have in front of me a relic. I don't know how this got on my desk. It might be my housekeeping. But the date is uh, March 25th, 2003. And if you'll recall, 2003 was uh, still in the aftermath of the tech bust and of the uh, then still somewhat nascent, although to some of us visibly inflating housing bubble, 2003. And here is a Bloomberg story, uh, Dateline Washington, March 25th. Quote, the Federal Reserve is studying the purchase of longer term treasury notes and other alternatives in the unlikely case that the central bank must act to ward off deflation, a Fed economist said. Quote, if asset prices don't adjust, ah, asset prices don't adjust sufficiently to stimulate spending, then open market purchases of long-term treasuries in sizable quantities can move term premiums lower, close quote, said Vince Reinhardt, secretary to the Federal Open Market Committee and director of the board's Division of Monetary Affairs. So this, I, I, I certainly, I, I must have read this at the time. I know I read this at the time, but I, you, you forget these things and, and the dates do run together, the years run on. But my goodness, here in the wake of the certainly just and rather long overdue bursting of that absurd tech bubble in 2000. The Fed was worrying about asset values not being raised back up again. And what was the what was the funds rate back then? Wasn't it also puny? Yeah, it was, uh, one, I think, one and a quarter, maybe. Correct, Phil. The, the, they had driven down the funds rate. And uh, I think that uh, one of the New York Times' most distinguished op-ed columnists had actually called upon the Fed to inflate the housing bubble. Who might that have been? Let's see, was that Jamie Reston? No, he was out of the picture by then. Let's see, uh, was it uh, Russell Baker, the humorist? Might have been, but I don't think it was Baker. Who, uh, is there another Fed, uh, another Times columnist that might Yeah, be? yeah. Not Tom Friedman, right? No. The other guy. Other guy, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, that's, so that's, that's, my, that's my historical relic for today. And I think that the Fed, so this shows you that uh, A, ideas have consequences. And B, those consequences are sometimes long in coming. Yeah, I, what, what is um, heterodox in one day becomes orthodox the next day. The Fed's talking about like, you know, QE is kind of a continuing program. But now the, the heterodox things that they're talking about are like negative interest rates, um, yield curve control, uh, all sorts of new and- All right, Evan, I'm glad you mentioned this because I'm now going to skim to the bottom of this particular historical relic. This again, ladies and gentlemen, a March 25th, 2003, story on 
Fed economist Vince Reinhardt's, what he was doing was giving us a, a preview of the modern age, right? All right. So, so oh, yeah. So, uh, the story quotes an, an economist at uh, a bank, doesn't matter where, said he expects the Fed to cut interest rates one more time by half a percentage point to 0.75% and then switch to other strategies. All right, so the story picks up. Quote, says the economist, I think you will start to see a mix of tools before the interest rate lever. Yeah. And to that, Vince Reinhardt is quoted as saying the following. Reinhardt said he doesn't consider the notes purchases, that's QE, to be unconventional because the Fed capped interest rates during the 1940s and used a quantity of money target from 1979 to 1982. And here's the money quote from Reinhardt, quote, what is usual, orthodox, and conventional is the Federal Reserve's willingness to adapt its policy to the circumstances, close quote. <sighs> the Fed lacks, I think, self-awareness. It certainly does not lack self-confidence. It says the most extraordinary things about itself. Yes, the Fed, as usual, is prepared and willing and able to adapt its policy to the circumstances. Well, let's see how it adapts its policy to these circumstances. These being, Evan, I'm going to propose something to you, an idea. Here's, here's an idea. The idea is that the Fed is now hostage to the debt structure that through its incentives of low rates and QE and mind games, it has uh, introduced into the economy especially corporate debt. They've even admitted it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Dallas President, or Dallas Fed President uh, Kaplan came out and said, we really can't raise these interest rates because corporations have taken on too much debt. He didn't say they took on too much debt because we lowered interest rates to pull forward spending, but that's kind of the, the box they, they put yeah. themselves in. And uh, explain to our readers, uh, uh, listeners, our readers know this already. Our listeners can be readers, right? Hopefully, it, it, it should it, be even. Uh, John Delbert, is that possible? Can a listener become a reader? Not only is it possible, it's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, Eric, you agree? We have a, agreement, uh, Phil? Uh, yes. So uh, agreement around the table, listeners, you can join our merry band. So for the benefit, Evan, of our listeners who could indeed become readers, uh, give us some for instances of uh, how the invitation to borrow and lend, not only at very low rates, but also on most easy terms, uh, covenant-free, et cetera, how these have made themselves manifest throughout the economy. What what signs are there of uh, perhaps excessive leverage in the corporate sector? So if you look 10 years ago, on average, uh, this is uh, data crunched by credit sites. If you look at like single A, like just um, on average, the amount of leverage that companies who are rated single A had, it's actually increased. So the rating agencies have started grading on a scale. If you actually look at kind of the structure of investment grade and sub-investment grade, we've had a mass deterioration in, um, in rating scandal, uh, ratings even with uh, this kind of curve grading. We've seen a huge migration into triple B, and if I believe it's something like, which is the lowest rung of investment grade, I think it's now like half of all investment grade right now. We've seen- All, all corporate debt. Of, of, of all corporate Bonds, debt. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of uh, sub-investment grade, we've seen the massive, massive growth of triple C, which is kind of the bottom rung before you kind of are default. I think it's over 40% as yeah, of 43. January. 43.6, I think, Marty Friedman. Uh, per Martin, Marty Fritzen, uh, 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 43.6. So we've seen kind of a massive increase in corporate borrowing and a massive decrease in the quality of corporate bonds. And and on top of that, notwithstanding the fact that last year was the strongest year in GDP growth in, I believe, three years, we saw an increase in the number of zombie companies. And this is per data crunched by Bianco Research. Zombie companies are defined as 
those that can't service their um, interest expense through operating income? Well, it's a, it's a definition that, of course, admits of uh, some anomalies and exceptions. And we've done these screens before, and sometimes uh, companies caught in the screen don't actually seem to be there, to deserve to be there, or some more than others, I guess. And vice versa. I mean, there's some companies who, through the um, generosities of gap accounting, look quite great. So yeah. if you take a look at Netflix's P&L, looks like a fast-growing, profitable company. Well, certainly fast-growing. Take a look at its balance sheet or its uh, free uh, cash flow statements. You can see that it's burning money faster than um, than most businesses I'm aware of. Yeah. Well, hey, have you guys heard about the uh, Pitney Bowes Senpro? I think no, you're going to hear about, about it. Yeah, right now. So are you paying too much to send out packages and letters? Probably. And wouldn't it be nice to have a solution that can give you the lowest rates? Certainly. So with SendPro Online, it's easy to save time and money no matter where you what you send, from packages to overnights and letters. So uh, just compare the Postal Service, UPS, FedEx rates, all in one online tool. Also gain access to special U.S. Postal Service savings. By the way, there's a, a copyright uh, punctiliously entered here in the copy after USPS. I, I wouldn't have guessed the post office would be so aggressive in enforcing its copyright. They don't want anyone to steal their uh, uh, branding. Or the, uh, uh, the, the corporate culture, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, so... Oh, yeah. So you can print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer. You can track all of your shipments and get email notifications when they've arrived. Uh, SendPro Online is only $14.99 a month. And for... Being a current Yield listener, you can get a free 30-day trial to get started, plus a free 10-pound scale to help you accurately weigh your packages. And you'll know when that scale arrived, because if you drop in your foot, you know it. So visit pb.com slash grantspod to access this special offer. That's pb as in, what, peanut butter, of course, dot com slash grantspod. Experience the best way to uh, ship with a free trial a free trial of SendPro Online. So I mentor at Barron's the great Bob Blyberg, Robert M. Blyberg, infantry veteran of Okinawa and the Philippines, World War II. Six foot two, maybe went like 220, bald head. He wasn't a tough guy, but he certainly sounded like it. One day in the office, somebody submitted some copy in which uh, I wrote, uh, a certain someone is experiencing something or other. And Bob said, God damn it. We don't experience anything at Barron's. We either enjoy it or we suffer it. And I think he like, <laughs> you like suffer better. Same at same Grant's. Yeah, same at Grant's. Hey, I'm a Barron's alumnus. You guys know that? I, I was aware. Yeah. Now you're back. I'm back. I took a 36 and a half year leave of absence, which I think, Eric Whitehead, you're kind of an HR guy. I think a 36 and a half year leave of absence is like an indoor record in HR, right? Did your office key still work when you uh, walked no, back in there? No, it did not. You'd be surprised how much changened. God, what happened to all the people? Anyway, so that's Barron's. Um, oh, I, I, speaking of the Dow Jones empire, I want to read uh, something about uh, getting back to the Fed. It's, I mean, this, this, it really bugs me the way people take the Fed's operating protocols and its worldview and accepts them as if they were passed on through, uh, through the New, New Testament, let's say. If they were passed, they were handed down from the saints. It's that unquestioning. I'm going to uh, draw the veil of charity over the byline of this, this piece, this analytical piece in today's Wall Street Journal, just because I'm that kind of a guy. I'm a charitable guy. I'm not going to say who wrote this. That person will have to know it himself and live with it. But um, here are three paragraphs from a con highly conventional, a deeply conventional reprise of what the Fed wants you, ladies and gentlemen, to think. Ready? Uh, guys ready? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'd appreciate a little feedback. And All right. 
even if this quote, as is Wall Street Journal, even if this slowdown doesn't presage a recession, it lends urgency to the Fed's recently launched review of whether its 2% inflation target framework and tools, uh, put a marker on that one, tools, I want to get back to that, can cope with the next downturn when interest rates are likely to hit zero again. The Fed, quote, should be changing the framework in ways that might at least help at the margin deal with this very challenging environment, said a person who shall not be named in the same interests of charity, a central bank strategist at a firm that also shall go nameless. By the way, why does a brokerage firm have a central bank strategist? That speaks to another damn thing. Talking to a lot of uh, smart investors right now, what they talk about is understanding the uh, Fed's reaction function. Uh, yeah. and, and they say that it's even more important than understanding e economics or the earnings of a company. Uh -huh. And in a way it is. I mean, the market sold off almost like 20% from okay, 720. Let's get back to this. Uh, this uh, Wall Street <laughs> Journal thing. All right, so I've interrupted you, Evan. You interrupt me. It's all fair, but the listeners might be a little confused by now. Okay, so I was reading Wall Street Journal's analysis of what the Fed said, and it's quotes people saying that we, we need better tools, we need uh, uh, more altitude. And uh, so, all right, and getting back to the journal, he's what says one possibility is the Fed may respond to periods of below two percent inflation by targeting above two percent inflation. This would keep the public from expecting below two percent inflation to persist, but. Getting inflation above 2% requires a, an economy running hot for a prolonged period. If the economy is indeed losing altitude, it may be too late, period, close quote. Or as we used to say in the newspaper business, 30. 30 means ended. 30 means stop. And by the way, in some newspaper guy funerals years ago, there'd be a wreath and number 30 on it. 30 is like it's over. Think of all these separate and discrete examples of zombie-like submission to the will of this bureaucracy. Who says, Evan Lorenz, we have to have 2% inflation? Well, that's price stability. Well, Janet Yellen said it, of course. She said it, but where price does she is, get Price it? is halving every 30 years is price stability, and I, I just thought everybody knew. Yeah, well, George Orwell said it in different words. And, uh, oh yes, so Jim Bianco uh, uh, brought to our attention, but Evan, you were the author of the great line that the Fed has now embarked on a kind of listening tour, but you said it's kind of actually kind of a talking tour. So these Fed officials are going around the country and uh, laying out their uh, ideas for a new protocol, right? The Fed has embarked on rethinking its, its mandates and its uh, way of doing business, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to have a, a powwow in Chicago in June. It's kind of a wampum powwow, right? Because they're going to they're gonna reprise and, uh, and re revisit all their assumptions. But the, the assumptions that they're taking into this meeting are kind of the fashion forward ones, right? It's kind of the AOC set of assumptions. They're going to do what? what? What are they thinking about? They're thinking about negative interest rates, correct? Negative, ne negative rates. interest rates. They're thinking that if uh, inflation's 1.8% one year, they should target 2.2% the next year. They're talking about yield curve control. They're talking about if rates get really low, we can't cut as much as we want to. So maybe we need to keep rates lower for a longer period of time. Um, they actually abbreviate that one L4L, L the number four and L, like, well, like was, texting tweens. That was a Bernanke essay, right? Yeah, that was a Bernanke one. Yeah. He's too busy, uh, you know, um, working at Citadel to actually write out full words now. But what department might he be working in, just to guess? Capital introduction? I, I would say so, yeah. Not central bank strategy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, maybe he's, maybe he's doing both. Maybe he's getting, maybe he's double dipping. Yeah. A busy guy. Um, oh, yes. So uh, from time to time, our listeners ask us for book suggestions. And from time to time, we at Grants feel the impulse to advertise our own wares on these podcasts. So I 
thought what I'd do is uh, kind of I do a two for one, right? Combine. So well, we are having, as I mentioned, the conference we're having in Plaza Hotel on April 9th. April 9th this year. What city? New York. That's the Plaza Hotel in New York. And we customarily give away books uh, because we believe that if you read books, you get rich. That's our view in this office. Uh, that's separate and distinct from writing books. Writing books don't get rich. Read books, however, get rich. So we give away books. And this year, oh, I forgot to mention this until this very moment. This year, we are having a completely uh, novel approach to book uh, giveaways because we are dumping uh, the overplus, the surplus of my personal grants library on a table and saying, please take it away because we've moved, we've moved our offices and there's not enough shelf space and we have some duplicates of the books that I have been collecting over the years. So people at the conference have come, we have, I don't know, how many books we have? Hundreds, right? A lot of boxes. Huh? Eric, who refuses to speak into a microphone, says 200 books. I would guess it's 201. It's a lot. And they're yours for the taking. We also have... So this gets back to the request for a suggestion of books to read. So there, we're giving away three. We are giving away a book by uh, by Anthony Scaramucci. It's called Blue Collar President. It's all about Trump. And he's going to talk about uh, buying low and selling high in the age of Trump. But Anthony has written a book. And that book is yours for the taking. I, I dare say Anthony would sign it for you. We have another one, uh, a very different kind of book. It's called Lost in Math. And it's by the physicist, the German physicist, Sabine Hassenfelder. And I've read this one, and it is uh, fabulous. It, it is accessible to those who, like me, were actually lost in math. But in this book, uh, Dr. Hassenfelder, Hassenfelder describes the, uh, the crisis in experimental physics, theoretical physics, because uh, uh, the speculative models, many of them that have been developed, have been proven not valid through experiments. And uh, she contends that the physicists have been seduced by the beauty of mathematics to the detriment of empiricism. And she has a little riff at the end of her book about economics. She says that uh, she looked at it because the career possibilities were rather more promising in economics than in theoretical physics. But she looked at economics and she thought two things. First, the mathematics was uh, <clears throat> unimpressive, <laughs> which I love. I love that. And uh, secondly... Uh, the data were worse. Well, on the bright side, the nice thing in economics is if your theory is wrong, it doesn't really matter. I mean, well, they're can, all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even if it's been proven wrong, you can continue using it at a central bank. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, in fairness, uh, she contends that the physicists continue to use these theories because they are so gobsmackingly beautiful. And for all I know, the dynamic, general, stochastic, Bernanke, no financial sector mathematical model is itself beautiful. I wouldn't know. I don't speak that uh, lingo. But uh, anyway, that's so that's another book. And the third book is a book called Floored, and that's by George Selgin. George is uh, uh, a monetary thinker of great uh, renown at the Cato Institute. He has written a book about the uh, the post-crisis Fed's monetary arrangements and protocols, and uh, it is a fine book, and he'll be there. I hope he'll be there to sign it. I hope they'll all be there to sign it. So those are three books. And uh, I don't know, come to the conference. What else? I think that's it. So, uh, Eric, welcome back. And uh, John Delbert, nice to have you in the room today. And uh, Evan, thank you. And Phil, uh, this is Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield. And uh, join us again soon. <laughs>